Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Okay. If you know the song, sing along. Don't leave me hanging, okay? It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Okay, how many of you grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Okay, it's a lot of people. Uh, Mr. Rogers has been around long enough that he spans the generations. So if you're on the younger side of the boomers to the older side of Gen Z or anything in between, you had a chance to see Mr. Rogers on TV as a young child. Uh, And I recently read uh, a biography of Mr. Rogers. It was fascinating. I had no idea uh, he was such a genius. I I just thought that they were like, okay, it's the 60s. We don't know how to make like really cool kids TV shows. So we're going to put like this this dude in a sweater up there or whatever. Um, But the guy was actually really, really sharp. Uh, He was a professionally trained musician. Uh, He was also uh, an early pioneer in child psychology. He was an expert in that field. And he was doing some, actually some really sophisticated and even subversive things. He got into TV because he thought um, this is a, a medium that people are using to manipulate children and exploit children. He actually wanted to use it to educate and to nurture people. And so he, he said, I'm going to use my expertise and get this other skill in TV and do this. It was really, really amazing. Uh, he also, did you know this? He was a Christian pastor. He was a pastor. He went to seminary. He got ordained. And he actually saw his TV show as his ministry, as his mission. And the kindness and the compassion that he infused into that was specifically because that was the way of Jesus. He wanted to express the heart of Jesus in that show. And you can actually look at his life's work as an expression, a living out of Jesus' second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's the reason why I am not ashamed today to have stolen my wardrobe and also the title of our series uh, for Mr. Rogers. So we are in the third week of our series, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And this is part of our year-long emphasis on learning to love our neighbors well. And I have loved over the last several months hearing the different ways you guys are reaching out to your neighbors, whether it is uh, bringing people, you know, fresh baked food or uh, having people over for a game night or lending tools with people or, uh, you know, helping out around with th- things people are doing out in their yards or whatever. It's, it's really been amazing. Now, I do want to warn some of you not to take this too far. Uh, last week, I was praying with a, a group of creative arts volunteers before the service, and one of them was praying about this theme of neighbors, which was great, and he was praying, God, God, I pray that we would uh, get more chances to connect to our neighbors. And I'm thinking, yes, Lord, yes. And he's saying, I pray that we get more chances to serve our neighbors. And I'm like, yes, Lord, yes. And he says, God, I pray that you would send snow so that we can shovel our neighbor's driveway. And I'm like, no, block that. Don't just, no, don't listen to him, okay? So we don't excommunicate very often, but that guy had it coming, so... No, but I actually love the passion behind that. Um, when, when we say we want to do whatever it takes, whatever opportunity we get, we want to show the love of Christ to our neighbors. Uh, in this series, we're talking about what it actually looks like to invite our neighbors, not just into a friendship with us, but actually into a friendship with God. So today we're going to be looking at a passage in the New Testament book of Romans. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was an early leader in the Jesus movement. And before actually joining the movement, he was one of the, the worst skeptics about it. He, he was so opposed to Christianity and so convinced that Jesus was a, a fraud that he actually was hunting down followers of Christ uh, to end this movement. 
But he had an encounter with Jesus that dramatically changed his perspective. And not only did he get convinced about Jesus, he actually became history's greatest advocate for Christ. And so we're going to actually read a section of of chapter 10 here where we kind of get at the heart of the message that Paul spent the rest of his life spreading around. Starts in verse 9. We're actually going to read this together. I'm going to read the parts in white that are going to be on the screen. You're going to read the parts that are in green. Um, And it's actually going to start on a green part. So if you want to look up at the screen, uh, we'll read this together. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can someone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want us to see three things here that explain both why and how we seek to share the good news with our neighbors. Here's the first thing. We share the good news with our neighbors because everyone is valuable. Everyone is valuable. Do do you believe that? Do you agree with that? Raise your hand if you believe that. Everyone is valuable. Okay, of course you believe that. That's a common assumption in our world, in our society, that every person has equal value with other people. But did you know that that has not always been an assumption that people had about human beings? Actually, for most of history, that has not been the case. In the ancient world that Paul lived in, it was assumed that obviously some people are more valuable than other people. Kings assumed that they were more valuable than their people. Roman citizens thought they were more valuable than non-citizens. Free people thought that they were more valuable than slaves. Men thought they were more valuable than women. Jews thought they were more valuable than non-Jews or Gentiles. The Greeks and Romans thought that they were more valuable than the Jews. And everybody assumed that there were some people who were more valuable than others. Do, Do you know how that changed? It actually changed with the teaching of Jesus. It was the first person, it was the first movement to spread that idea in a a widespread way that all people are equally valuable. This is one of the things that Paul is actually addressing in the book of Romans. He he is speaking to a church that is experiencing something that has never existed in the history of, of the world. A movement made up of people from multiple ethnicities and multiple economic statuses coming together to try to actually be a family. And so he's trying to explain to them how they can actually share life together. In particular, he's addressing Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, and trying to get them to welcome each other. That's why in verse 12, he says this, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. He's saying God doesn't look at people from one group and say they're more valuable than people from another group. This is why uh, Paul, as a Jew, dedicates his life to telling Gentiles, people of other ethnicities, other, other cultural backgrounds, about Jesus. It's also the reason Paul is so passionate about his own people, the Jews. Uh, early on in this chapter, he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. That even earlier in the book, he actually says, if I could go to hell, 
so that all the rest of my fellow Jews would actually come to faith in Christ, I would do it. Now, he knows that's not a deal you can actually make with God. You can't say, well, I'll go to hell for the sake of them. But he's saying, this is how passionate I am. Whatever it would cost for them to actually know about Jesus, I would do it. Is there anybody in your life that you're that passionate about? Why would Paul be passionate about both the the Jews that didn't believe and the Gentiles who are not like him? Why would he give his life to trying to tell them about Jesus? Because he believed that every single person is of infinite value. When you let that idea sink in, like really get into your heart, you you can't not care about what happens to people. You you care about their hopes and their dreams and their work and their relationships. And you you care about their spiritual life and you care about their eternity, where they're going to be when they pass away. Everyone is valuable, every single person. And so I'm guessing that most of us, we believe that here. But here's the question I have for you. If I asked the people around you, would they say, you know what, I'm convinced that they believe that? Like if I went to one of your neighbors and said, you know, when you interact with her, do you feel valued? Does that just come across when you're talking with that person? Have you ever been with someone who makes you feel valued? You know these kind of people where you're like, man, when I'm with them, I feel like they really care about me. I had a professor in college who was like this, great example. Uh, there were so many people, when I was on campus, there would be so many people who say, oh yeah, he, he's my mentor. He's mentoring me, he's just mentoring me. And I met so many people who are like, yeah, this guy's my mentor, that I started to think, I was like, there is no way this man physically has enough time to have this many people he's mentoring. What is going on? And then I figured it out. Most of the people who said that, that he was mentoring them had only had a couple of conversations with him. But those conversations were so meaningful it felt like it was changing their lives. And this is what would happen. They'd stop into his office or they'd you know, get coffee with them or they'd pull him aside in the hallway. And as soon as he was talking to them, he latched onto them. So eye contact, he's looking straight at them and he's, it's like they're the only person in the world. And he's asking them meaningful questions and he's listening. It's like, it's like you felt like he got your attention and said, I desperately wanna know how you are doing right now. It was, it was like you just open up with this sort of guy. I actually ran into him a couple of months ago with my wife and he started doing this with my wife and he kind of looked at her and within a minute, he's like asking questions and she's pouring out her heart and saying, this is what's going on in my life. And if he were 40 years younger, I'd be very threatened. I'd be like, come along, let's go. (laughs) But you know those sorts of people, right? This is actually the secret to Mr. Rogers' success with children. Uh, When children would see Mr. Rogers in public, they would come running up to him. And of course he was on TV, but they didn't interact with him like a celebrity. It wasn't like, I saw Mickey Mouse, ah, you know. It, it was like they would go up to him and they would say, this is what makes me scared. Or this is what I care about. I wonder about this. They'd open up with their questions and their feelings to him. Why, why was that? It's because Mr. Rogers was someone who didn't just say that children were valuable. He was actually someone who communicated to children, make children felt like they were valuable. And so because of that, they would just open up and unfold and say, this is what's really going on in my heart. It's interesting, that isn't just something that happens with children, it actually happens with adults. If you make someone feel valued and respected and cared about, that the things that they think about and care about are things that you also are gonna take an interest in, people will open up and and share all sorts of things. This week, I want you to do an experiment, okay? As you're having conversations with people, even small talk conversations, I want you to listen for moments when someone expresses an emotion, whether they say the word for the feeling that they're feeling or you just pick it up. I want you to do this. Whatever the feeling is, good, bad, whatever. It could be happiness, sadness, fear, whatever. You you just say to the person, 
that sounds blank, and you just name the emotion. So that, that sounds frustrating. That sounds difficult. That sounds exciting. Tell me about it. Just do that. That sounds sad. Tell me about it. And then you just shut up, and you look them in the eye, and see what happens. You'll be amazed where the conversation will go. If you do that simple thing, you should not be surprised to find yourself again and again in meaningful and even spiritual conversations. It might not always happen, but very often people will open up and say, hey, this is, this is what's going on with me. When, when you care about another person and they feel it, they're, they're going to trust you with what's going on. And you'll get a chance to share from your heart too. You'll get a chance to share your story with God or offer to pray for somebody. It may be a little bit later after that conversation, you, get, you send that person a text and say, hey, I was still thinking about that conversation. So thankful that we got to talk. You know, I actually ran across this quote from the Bible that I found really encouraging, and I hope it encourages you that when you make someone feel valued, they won't feel like you're treating them like a, a project or a task. They won't feel like you're selling something. They'll actually want to share with you about things that matter. There are all sorts of things that get in the way of making people feel valued. But I feel like the biggest one is the fact that we're so busy. Don't you feel that? On Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, after the opening sequence, when they would kind of pan through this sort of little model city and go towards Mr. Rogers' house, you know the very first thing you would see when they cut to Mr. Rogers' house was a yellow blinking stoplight. It's just a blinking yellow light. You know he did that really deliberately. It was a way of saying, okay, now is the time to slow down and pay attention. Because he knew that to give or receive love was not something you could rush. If you want to make someone feel valued, you actually have to take the time to slow down and give them the attention. I think that's so important for us. That is one of the reasons why we have been encouraging the always rule when we're talking about our neighbors. Say that every time you see a neighbor, you're pulling out of your driveway, you're out in the yard doing something, you see a neighbor, you always stop and say hello. Why do we do that? It's slightly inconvenient, but what it does is it makes it so that you communicate the value to someone and say, hey, it doesn't matter what I'm doing right now, you're important enough that I'm going to connect with you, say hello, make sure that you know that I'm interested in you. We do that because everyone is valuable. That's the first thing I want you to see. Let's look back at the passage for the second thing here. Let's look at verse 9. It says this, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's the second reason we share the good news with our neighbors. It's because anyone, anyone can be saved. This is another one of those things that people will say they believe, but functionally they don't act like it. You might have somebody in your life that you think it doesn't matter what I say or what I do, they're never gonna change. They're too far gone, they're not interested, they're a lost cause. And so you might say anyone can be saved, but you think, yeah, this person probably isn't. But the passage says this, anyone, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, anyone. Your son who walked away from Jesus as soon as he moved out of the house and hasn't looked back since. Your coworker who makes the snide remarks about the fact that you go to church. Your neighbor that has turned down every invitation to Christmas or Easter since you moved in. Anyone, 
anyone can be saved, even you. I know some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, well, okay, yeah, I know I'm in church, but on the inside, I just know this isn't for me. You're you're glad that this works for your spouse or your brother, your, your, your parents or whatever, but for you, it's more complicated. Like you've done some things. You've been through stuff. And you have doubts and questions that are not simple. It's complicated. And you think, look, if there's a God out there, like I'm just guessing he's not interested in me. There's nothing in my life, no evidence here that he's actually interested in me. Or maybe you suspect you just wouldn't qualify. He doesn't, he doesn't actually want you. You're too much of a mess for that. You know what Mr. Rogers would say to that? He'd say this. It's a mistake to think that we have to be lovely to be loved by human beings or by God. It's a mistake to think that we have to be lovely to be loved by human beings or by God. We, we usually think that this is what we need to do, that, that God wants us to, to make ourselves lovely, appealing to him, attractive to him, that somehow, you know, we kind of make him a little bit happy and then he's gonna pay attention to us. That if we were, if we were a little bit better, we were, we were good people, then those are the people that God's interested in. But here's the truth. God doesn't need us to be lovely for him to love us. In fact, he actually makes us lovely by loving us first. And what this means is there are no lost causes. There are no lost causes. Uh, Paul, of all people, should know this. He was literally hunting down people to kill them. He was systematically trying to eliminate a minority religious population. This is a bad dude. We put him on trial. And that's the reason why after Jesus changed his life, Paul never wrote anybody off. Because if God could change and, and, and transform and forgive and welcome someone like him, then he could do that for everybody. But why is it that anyone can be saved? It's because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we have done. And this actually brings us to the good news itself. What is this good news that Paul is so interested in getting out? That we actually have put the, the good news together in a, a simple form. If you got one of these that we handed you on the way in, a God's Good News booklet, I want you to take that out right now. This is a, a little resource we put together as a church to just kind of get at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, if you don't have one on you right now, you can actually uh, pull up the CCC Life mobile app. It's available there. It's also available on our website. And there are two groups of people that we made this resource for. Uh, the first is for those of you who are still trying to figure out the whole Jesus thing. We realize that when you're investigating an entire faith, that there's a lot to sort out, like what's the most important, what's the heart, what's the main thing here? And so we have just distilled it down to say, here is the core message of Jesus. If you wanna figure out what this thing is about, this is what you need to know. The other group of people we made this for are for those of you who are already followers of Christ and you're trying to explain what you believe to other people. Uh, There are times when you're talking with someone about what you believe that you might feel like, you know what? it'd it'd be so much simpler if I just had a little guide. And so you might be talking with someone and you you say, you know, my church actually put together kind of a visual aid, a simple visual aid that helps explain a lot of this stuff. Could I actually show it to you? And you just, you pull one of these out. Uh, Most of the time when I use these, it's uh, after a conversation. I'll be talking with someone about God and we'll, we'll, it'll go somewhere. And I'll say, you know what? Hey, this has been a great conversation. Uh, My church actually put together something that kind of sums a lot of the things we're talking about up. I want to give this to you. Maybe you're think, if you're thinking about this later and you kind of were like, what were we talking about? This would be a good thing to read over and I'd be happy to talk to you about it again. And so that's how I use this. But today what I want to do is I want us to actually walk through this booklet together. And, and so that way, all of us hear the good news today. No matter where we're at spiritually, we get to hear the good news today. So turn with me to the first page and, and follow along. Here's where it all starts. God created us to enjoy a personal relationship with him and a purposeful life. 
This is, this is fantastic news to hear about. We were made for God. We were made to know him, to, to be loved by him, and to love him in return. And not only that, we were actually made to be partners with God. God wants to send us out into to the world to fill it with, with love and goodness and joy and justice. And so he says, let's partner together and do that. And so this is the reason why all of us crave intimacy and crave purpose and meaning, because we were made for that. Now, here's the question. Why is it that even though we were made for that and we crave it, we don't experience it? What actually has gone wrong that you and I don't have that intimate relationship with God? Let's flip to the second page. Here's what the Bible says went wrong. It says, our sin separates us from God. Our sin separates us from God. Uh, Sin is a strange word. It's a word we basically only use in church in the Bible. But here's a simple definition of what it means. It's when we disobey God by going our way instead of his way. We say, God, you know what? I I don't need you to kind of lead my life. I don't need to follow you. I'll kind of, I'll find my own way. I I don't want you to be the center. I'll, I'll make myself the center of my life. I don't need you to be my source of satisfaction. I'll find satisfaction somewhere else. And we say, I'm going this way. And you know what God says to us when we do that? He says, okay, you can go. With tears in his eyes, he says, go and see how that works for you. See if you can find satisfaction without me. Now, the thing that we find is that when we walk away from God, who's the giver of life, you know what we're walking towards? Death. You walk away from the source of goodness and life, and that's where you're headed. And so that's the reason why all of us die spiritually. That's the the reason for that ache and longing on the inside. It's the reason why at the end of life we die physically. And it's the reason why if nothing's done about it, in eternity we will die eternally, separated from God. So we have a serious, serious problem with sin. Now, when people hear about this, they respond in a lot of different ways. Go ahead and turn to the next page here. People respond to this separation in a variety of ways. A lot of people simply deny the problem. They hear about sin and they say, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but like sinner, like, I, like I'm basically a good person. Like I do some things, but I'm, I'm a good guy. Let's ask the question. You think that's true? But if we're really honest with ourselves, what do you think we'll find? I, I, you don't have to think of really big dramatic things when we're talking about sin. You don't have to blow up a building to be a sinner. It, it comes out in all sorts of ordinary ways throughout every single day. What if we just started with kind of the, the big ones, okay? The, you know, if we're good people, we probably can keep the top 10 list of rules, right? Like top 10 commandments in the Bible. 10 commandments. Let's, let's start with the more, most popular ones. You shall not steal. Have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? You shall not lie, okay? Everybody who has never lied, go ahead and raise your hand. This is your chance to commit the sin. You can do it right now. Honor your father and mother. Every, every one of you, your entire life, from childhood all the way till now, have always honored your parents. What about this one? Big one, easy. You shall not kill. Most of us haven't done that, right? But Jesus said that a person who hates someone or, or, or says someone, you fool in anger, has committed murder in their heart. Spiritually, it's the same. And I'm pretty sure that in the current political climate, no one has ever said, you fool in anger to anyone. It just doesn't happen. You shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. You can't look at your neighbor and say, oh man, I really wish I was them. Never happens. Not here in the suburbs, never. And of course, the big one, the very first command God gives us, you shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever put something else first in your life besides God? 
See, this, this is the thing. Our, our sin might not be flashy or shocking, but each and every day, in thousands of small ways, you and I, we add to the poison that's killing our world. We, we are part of the problem. And so that's why the Bible says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Other people, when they look at that big chasm of sin, they, they just kind of ignore the chasm. They just pour themselves into something else, their career or their, the possessions that they have or their relationships or physical pleasure, whatever it is. They say, this is more enjoyable right now than thinking about that. But you know what happens when we do that? Is we get hooked, we get enslaved. It's the reason we become workaholics and alcoholics and people pleasers and perfectionists because we think this is gonna satisfy us, but it actually just traps us. But other people, they look at the chasm and they say, I could jump that. that what, if I, what if I do enough good deeds? What if I live a moral life? I go to church, that's probably, that's gonna be enough. It's sort of like, you know, if I could just tip the scale back a little bit in my favor, do, do enough good to offset the bad that I've done, I'm probably gonna be okay, right? Well, the Bible actually says that's not how it works. <laughs> you can't do good things to make up for the bad things. The bad things are just there on their own. And so that chasm between us and God is not a tiny crack. It's the Grand Canyon. So you might be able to jump farther than I can, live a better life than I can, but none of us, none of us are gonna make it across. So, so here's the question with all of that. What can we actually do about our separation from God? And the answer might surprise you. The answer is nothing. There is nothing you can do to bridge the separation between you and God. If it's gonna be bridged, God is going to have to do it. Turn with me to the next page. God bridged our separation through his son, Jesus. This is incredible. This is the good news. It's the news that God did not stay up in heaven. He did not stay on the other side of that chasm and just shout across, say, okay, work a little bit harder. You come and try and get to me. Instead, what he said is, how about I come over to you? How about I bridge the gap? And this is what he did. In the person of Jesus Christ, God himself showed up, lived a human life, was here with us on earth. He said, I'm going to come to you. And Jesus said, all right, I'm going to take all of the burdens on me. I'm going to take all of the consequences of your sin, all of the pain and all of the suffering. I'm going to take responsibility for it. I'm going to stand in solidarity with you and I'm going to represent you. Even though I didn't make this mess, I'm going to take responsibility for the mess. It's sort of like a person with incredible riches Marrying a person who has incredible debt. As soon as they say, I do, the one person, person's debt becomes the other person. They didn't actually earn it, but they're going to be responsible for it. And the other person's wealth and riches becomes the other person's. That's what God does with us in the person of Jesus. He says, I'm going to take your burden and I'm going to share with you my reward. And so this is what Jesus is doing on the cross. He, he's on the cross and he's saying, I am pay, paying the penalty. I am paying the price for your sin." I'm going to take it all so that you don't have to. And the really amazing thing after that is that once Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead. He faced death, went through it, and came out on the other side never to die again. And so he offers to all of us, he says, not only can your sin be forgiven, but you can have eternal life if you want it. That's amazing. That's good news. So the question is, how do we receive that? How do we walk across this bridge that God built? Look at the next page. It says we must put our faith in Jesus, the Savior and King. We've got to put our faith in Jesus, the Savior and King. What do we mean by faith? Faith is a whole person response to the good news, to Jesus. It includes agreeing that certain things are true, believing that certain stuff, all this stuff about Jesus is factually true. 
But it also means saying, I'm going to give up all of the sin that I was chasing after before, all the things I thought would satisfy me. I'm going to give up the ways I was trying to run my own life. And Jesus, I'm going to trust you with all of it. I'm going to, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my whole self. We call this surrendering to Jesus. I want you to rescue me and I want you to run my life. I'm yours. This is how Paul put it in the, the verse that we've been studying. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. Turn to the next page of the booklet. Look, look at that chart there. Four people. Which person are you? Where are you on this chart? Where are you in relationship to the bridge? Take an honest assessment right now. Many of you are that person on the far right of the bridge. You put your faith in Christ already and you're taking steps, walking with him, and that's wonderful. The others of you are on the far left. You aren't ready to put your faith in Jesus. And that, that might be the case here. And here's the question I would ask you. But why is that? There's a lot of people who, when they, they think, you know, I'm not interested in Jesus, they, they haven't actually put together what the reason is. They just sort of instinctively say, yeah, I'm not interested. But have you ever said, no, this is my objection. This is my barrier. And then when you've identified that, have you actually looked to say, well, is there an answer to that question? Is there a way to overcome that? Is it time to start seeking? Others of you, you are that, that second person. You're the person standing right there, right next to the bridge. And you're saying, you know what? I think I want to cross. I think I want to put my trust in Jesus. This, this is the hope that I've been looking for. I'm ready to do that. I want to be saved. If that's you, I want to help you do that. At the end of this sermon, in just a few minutes, we're going to pray a prayer together that, that actually expresses that surrender, that decision to put your faith in Christ. And you can take that opportunity here and now today. This is the good news. This is the good news that Jesus has done everything that was needed to rescue us and reunite us with God. And because of that, there are no lost causes. There's no one that you can give up on. Anyone, including your, your friends, your family, you and me, anyone can be saved. Here's the third and final thing I want you to see from this passage. If everyone is valuable and anyone can be saved, then someone has to tell them. Then someone has to tell them. Now, most people like the first two points of this sermon because they're kind of encouraging and warm. This is the one that makes us uncomfortable because you're like, okay, I gotta do what? You want me to talk to someone about this? Okay, I don't know if I wanna do that. But Paul puts the logic really clearly. Verse 14, he says, how can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Maybe you've heard the phrase, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. You ever heard that before? It's kind of a clever little phrase. You know, it's kind of, you know, it kind of makes you think a little bit. And the question is, is it a true statement? Preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. I think at its very best, what that phrase indicates is saying we should live lives that are so distinct and compelling that when someone sees us, even before we open our mouth, they say, what's different about that person? And if that's what that quote inspires in you, then I guess that's okay. But I actually think there's a couple of problems with the idea of preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. First is this, most of us use that phrase not as an inspiration to live really distinct, different kinds of lives, but as an excuse of saying, you know what, I'm gonna live a life that offends no one and doesn't get noticed and I'm just gonna blend in, okay? My, my, my life is probably preaching the gospel, right? The other reason it's a problem is technically 
it's just not possible to preach the gospel without words. Like by definition, okay? The word gospel in Greek, the one that we, we, we use here, is a, actually a technical term that means a message that a messenger was bringing to a city. So a, a messenger would come running into a city, running into a city, and they say, I've got a gospel, I've got a message. And then they would declare something that they thought would be good news. You know, the battle has been won. A new king has ascended the throne. The, the enemy has defeated something, and people would be excited about that. But I want you to imagine this, a messenger, you're in town, a messenger comes running into town. And they're like, I've got a gospel. And then they say, but I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to live here among you. And you're going to try and pick up what it is based on my lifestyle and how it changes me. You'd be like, come on, man, you got a gospel. You, I want to hear it. Let it out, man. Think about this. If there was a news network whose slogan was this, report the news at all times when necessary use words. Be like, I'm not watching that. Like, what, this, what's the point? It's always necessary to use words to report good news. At some point, if we want people to be saved, we actually have to tell them the message about Jesus. This is the reason why as a church, we're constantly giving opportunities for you to invite people to come and hear the message of Christ. There's a couple that are coming up that we've been talking about a lot in two weeks, Inspiring Stories Weekend with Scott Hamilton. His story is amazing. There is a, a little detail in the story we have not told you yet because we don't want to spoil it, but I will tell you it's amazing. It is a link between his success as a skater and his uh, experience fighting cancer. And it, it, it gave me goosebumps when I first heard it. You're not going to want to miss it, and you're going to want your friends to hear the story. The other opportunity that we've got coming up is in February, we've got Feed My Starving Children. We're going to be packing a million meal, meals across our four campuses. Uh, and this is not just because that's a good thing to do, to pack uh, food for kids, but because it's an opportunity to invite neighbors to come and join us doing something at church. It's such a super easy invite because people don't need to be convinced that this is a good thing. They're eager to do it. So, so look for opportunities to invite people to do that. At both events, we're going to share the good news. And so that's one that you want to make sure that people are going to be at. But it's not just about inviting people to events. We also have to be personally sharing the message of the gospel with people. And this is the part that feels so awkward to us. And, and the, the hard part about this is that there's no way to completely remove the awkwardness. Part of the reason is that we have an enemy who does not want us to share this message. And so he's going to make sure we feel uncomfortable when we try to do that. The other reason is there are always going to be people who simply aren't interested. It's just going to be the case that there are going to be people who say, I don't want to talk about that. But I do want to give you a little bit of hope in this, a little bit of good news. Uh, the pastoral staff here is reading a book right now called The Reluctant Witness. It's one of the books that we're recommending as part of this series. And it's based on some research that was done by a group where they went and talked to both Christians and non-Christians about what it's like to have spiritual conversations with people. And so they, they went to a whole bunch of people who are not followers of Jesus, and they said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the last time someone who uh, was talking about their faith that you did not share came up to you and wanted to talk with you about that. I want you to think about the last conversation you had like that. And then here's the question. Were you glad you had that conversation? Okay, so these are non-Christians. Someone else is talking to them probably about Jesus. Were you glad you had that conversation? Now, before I read this book, if I were to guess what percentage of people were glad a Christian talked to them about Jesus, I would probably say optimistically, like 20%, right? Like if one in five people were happy that I talked to them about Jesus, I'd be like, yeah, wow, that, that feels really good. That feels really good. You know what the actual number is? 86%. 86%. 
Now, not all of them were like, yeah, this was amazing, but they were, that 86% were the people who were positive about the last interaction they had with a Christian talking to them about Jesus. 55% of them, though, said definitely that was a good interaction, and I'm thankful that I had that conversation. 86%. And you say, what about the 14%? Like, that's still a big chunk of people. I don't want to roll those dice. I don't want to make those people uncomfortable. Well, here's the deal. Let me put it in perspective. How many people, when you bring up the topic of football, do you think want to talk about football? There's actually an answer to this, okay? The, the, I, let me make sure I get the statistic exactly right. So I, I'm factual right here. 57% of people want to talk about football. 57% of people. That means more people enjoy conversations about Jesus than conversations about football. And you still bring up football all the time, right? <laughs> Plus 14% of, of spiritual conversations. That's, that's all spiritual conversations. That includes the people who are rude and pushy and, and, and you guys are not gonna be that way, right? Like no one in our church is gonna go and be a jerk about talking about Jesus, especially, especially if we get that first point right. If we believe everyone is valuable, we're going to interact with people with respect and kindness and love. It's going to be really easy to avoid being a part of the 14%. Now, I understand the intimidation of spiritual conversations. Uh, it is so hard for me. I am not good at this. So I'm, 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 I'm totally open here. I'm really bad. I can talk to thousands of people about Jesus. No big deal. You want me to talk one-on-one -on -one to someone about Jesus? And I'm like, um, okay, here we go. So I, I've really got to work on this all the time myself. Uh, but I recently had an experience that reminded me just how exciting it is to actually uh, have these conversations. So this is a couple of weeks ago. And I went to a trivia night. So the local library was sponsoring a trivia night. And it was hosted at a new brewery in town. So there's this brewery and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, you know, I got a lot of useless information in my head and I'd like to go meet people in our area and connect with people. So I'm going to go to this trivia night. So I, I get there and I start psyching myself out. I'm like, I don't do this sort of thing. I don't go and mingle with strangers. I don't know. So I'm standing outside and thinking, I don't want to do this. So I, I say a prayer and I, I walk inside and I get there and it's packed. And I'm like, oh no, this is awful. I I gotta like find a, a table and invite myself in and whatever. And so I'm just standing in the back and the host or a waiter or somebody says, oh, hey, are you looking for a, a spot to sit? There's one right there. And like the crowd parts and there's a seat. And I'm like, oh, a seat. But the people at the table, they look up and they see me and the waiter's pointing. And so it's like, I have to sit at this table. The problem was the other people at the table were two women. And I'm like, oh no. I like a man by himself walk up. I'm going to sit with two women. I'm like, I got a ring. I got a ring. I'm like, you know, and like someone from my church is going to see me here. No, these are not Michelle. And it's, it's going to be bad. You know what I mean? I'm in a brewery and this, oh, my reputation is shot. <laughs> but I couldn't not. It was like so awkward. I was like, well, I guess I got to sit here. So I sit down in that table and I'm thinking, I'm going to look for another spot that maybe looks, you know, more people that, you know, I should be connecting with or whatever. But I start talking uh, with the women who are sitting there and the game starts going and, you know, we're making small talk. And, and at one point, they ask the inevitable question, say, you know, what, what do you do for work? And of course, for me, that's the worst. So I usually, you know, I avoid the P word. I say, well, I work at a church. Um, I work in creative arts with musicians and tech people because people think music is cool, you know, that's cool, whatever. But when I said, I work at a church, that flash crossed across their eyes. It's like, oh, they know, they know what that means. So we keep talking a little bit longer. And at, at some point I say, well, you guys are, are clearly friends. How do you guys know each other? And they go, well, we're both Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and that, that flash goes across my eyes like, oh, no. <laughs> so they go to the same congregation together. And 
(laughs) And at that point, I have a choice, right? I can either lean in and say, all right, let's, let's see where this conversation goes. Or I can say, you know what, I change the subject, we can talk about something else and, and just kind of avoid all of that. So what I do is I say, well, the three of us are, are quite a joke, right? Two Jehovah's Witnesses and a pastor walk into a bar like, here we go. And this was what was amazing. At that point I said, you know what, I, I don't actually know a lot about being a Jehovah's Witness. What is it actually like for you? And I didn't, I didn't jump into like, okay, let's talk about what our difference is about what we think about the Bible or something like that. I just said, what's your experience like? You're, you're valuable. You're, like, you're, you're someone who's important. This matters to you. Tell me about why it matters. How'd you get into that? What, what, what's it like? What's the experience? What's it like to knock on doors and try to talk to people about religion? And they told me all sorts of crazy stories that happened there. And in response, they asked me, well, why'd you become a pastor? And you know, what, what this, and we talked for three hours as we're doing trivia in between about God and the Bible and faith and all of this stuff. And it was so much fun. It was not the tense, you know, debate kind of conversation you expect or something where people felt pressured or awkward. It was just being open and honest about what we valued. These are the kinds of conversations we could be having if we just take the step of saying, I'm gonna have some courage to show interest in another person and take the risk of getting over that initial awkwardness to say, hey, let me, let me tell you about something. It can be a great time. Look at the last verse in this section here, verse 15. Paul uses a really weird image here. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's actually quoting an Old Testament verse here, but it's a, a description. It's, again, it goes back to that image of the messenger who comes running into town with a gospel, a good news to tell. And he's saying, when in the ancient world, when people would run and they, the messenger would come, their feet would be all bloody and cracked and caked with mud and nasty. When most people look at a foot, they are not like, yeah, I want to get closer to that, right? It, it, it's an awkward thing to, to bring into a situation, these cracked, nasty feet. But he's saying, how beautiful, how beautiful are those feet? What makes the messenger's feet so beautiful? The fact that they carried someone who is bringing the message that changes everything. Because when someone hears the message, they they suddenly say, this is not an awkward thing that I'm resisting. They're saying, oh my, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. When that spark happens in someone and they say, Jesus is the one that I was waiting for. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Paul is trying to say, we can be a part of that beauty. We can be those messengers. There's some of you here today that you're at that point where you've said, you know what, I'm hearing the message. When we walk through God's good news like that, I heard the message and I'm thinking, this is for me. I want that. That sounds beautiful. I am ready. And so you're standing at the edge of that bridge and it is time to cross it. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna give you a chance to do that. As I close in prayer here, we're gonna pray a prayer that's really simple. And it's a prayer of surrender that if you're at that point, I would encourage you to pray with me and express this to God. Let's pray. The the prayer has three simple words. It goes, sorry, thanks, please. So pray with me. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all of the ways I've gone my way instead of your way. I'm sorry for the things that I've done that I know are wrong. God, I, I, I haven't led myself anywhere good. This is uh, something that I shouldn't have done. And so I'm sorry, forgive me. In your own way, in your heart, say sorry to God. The next word is thanks. Thanks. 
We say, God, thank you. Thank you so much for not leaving me on my own. God, thank you that you love me enough to send Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming and taking my burden on you. Thank you for going to the cross and dying for me and doing for me what I could not do for myself. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you for rising from the dead and offering me life. Thank you. Go ahead and express that in your own way and your heart to God. And then we say, please, God, please forgive me for my sin. God, please rescue me from myself. God, please come into my life and start to change me and transform me. God, please welcome me into your family and give me a future with you in heaven. God, please rescue me. I need you to be the Lord, the leader of my life. I need you to be my savior. Please save me. Go ahead and express that in your own way to God. God, I wanna thank you for each person who's just prayed that prayer. Each person who has walked across that bridge and said, I'm in, I need Jesus to save me. Because it's so exciting. The promise that we have from this passage is that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which means you have just saved people here today. That is thrilling, God. God, I pray that you would move in their lives, help them begin walking with you day by day. And we pray that you would give them deep roots into you so that they grow and bear fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.